Welcome to the Born to Rule podcast, the go-to place for you to learn how to walk in your authority in Christ through your rulership identity in Him. My name is Christian Santiago. I am the host of this podcast and the co-founder, along with my wife, my beautiful Australian wife, of Born to Rule Global Ministries, a ministry completely focused on helping you walk in your authority and activating that. Today's interview is powerful to say the least. I'm just saying, I'm going to re-listen to this three times myself, but I am joined by none other than Rabbi Brian Belecci. He's a Messianic rabbi. He lives in Indio, California, um, and he's a uh, campus pastor as well of a church. Not only he's leading his own synagogue, but he's also a campus pastor of a church of Destiny Church of one of the three campuses. And he's also John and Lisa Bevere's personal rabbi. He's a messianic rabbi filled with the Holy Spirit, loves Jesus, and talks about the power of the kingdom. And so this interview is going to be so powerful. He's talking about what is the key to your authority in Christ. Even just the difference between form and function and how Jewish mind still believes and they know how apostles and prophets operate today. And even at the end, he's going to talk about invoking the name of God upon you so that the God of more than enough at the end of it, stay to the end. It's a huge blessing on your life. You will receive the invoking of the name of God of El Shaddai on your life. He also talks about keys of the kingdom and what that really means and how to activate that in our life and just so many other things. So I am telling you, this episode, you are going to love it. You're going to be transformed. Share it with five people. Rate five stars. And at the end of the day, I'm telling you, you stay connected with him. I'm going to have his links in the show notes. Enjoy the episode and walk in your authority. We love you guys. Walk in power. Walk in authority. And live as the king or queen that you are. So, Rabbi Brian Belecci, man, um, I'm so glad I got you on this podcast. Uh, for those that don't know you a little bit, uh, this is a part of the intro. I didn't put it in there, but you have been known to be um, John and Lisa Bevere's almost like personal rabbi in a way. Um, but I'd love to know. I am. I don't think they have any other rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I wanted They're to get you friends. all. Yeah, I wanted to get you on the podcast because of just the rabbinical wisdom that you carry. Like uh, one of the things just living in the West, um, we can sometimes lose the Eastern wisdom that is just so necessary because, I mean, God's a, a, we serve a Jewish God. So it's it's just a powerful thing, a necessary thing. So I wanted to ask you first, uh, your origin. I mean, you are um you got into like your journey to being a rabbi i want to i want to hear that share that journey and and what pulled you into it i'm actually in chapter five already of my book that explains the journey and also develops the real jesus way of discipling people and uh, it's going to be a great book i won't get into all that today but some of this stuff is fresh in my heart and mind. Uh, So my family background, a lot of the European blood that I have in my family background happens to have Jews and surnames that are Jewish that really led to me discovering this later in life. But when I was young, I had an uncanny ability to look at Hebrew 
then Aramaic and Greek and make the connection to the English of both Old and New Testament. So for some reason, I was one of these kids that was the devil's advocate. I was basically questioning everything, not knowing that even that was Jewish. And so I basically began to search out, first of all, in my family line, I just wanted to know what our last name was all about, Belechi. I wanted to know where we were from. I asked a lot of questions. I got only a few answers. And, uh, but I started finding out that our name was not just Italian, but Sicilian. I later discovered we were from the part of Sicily, like Trapani and Palermo, that is a Jewish quarters on the west side of the island. The other side was Messina, and those two had large Jewish communities that later had to hide as Catholics. So the Spanish Inquisition hit Spain. It also hit in 1492 and then 1493 in Sicily and Italy, and Jews had to hide. I didn't discover this until I watched the movie Life is Beautiful by Roberto Benini, and that's when my discovery of Italian Jews in the Holocaust and those affected by the Spanish Inquisition were really a part of my heritage. And so before I knew that I was Jewish, I was just hungry for the word of God, and I wanted to know it from its original language. So discovering that the Bible was written in Hebrew changed everything. One of the things I discovered was from a Western mindset, we think form before we think function. So mm -hmm. we're into titles but we, before we understand dynamics. And so sometimes as a young man, I would find people that were more into, I want to be a pastor. I want to be an evangelist. I want to be a, an apostle. I want to be a prophet. I want to be a teacher. And I never had that desire. I just wanted to know God. I want to understand God because there was too many things in that Bible that was confusing to me as a young man. So as I began to learn that the Bible was mostly written in Hebrew, I found out that it's actually opposite than Western thinking. The Eastern mindset thinks function before they think form. So in other words, I found out that God, when he decided to form man, in the garden, in creation, in the Garden of Eden, he thought about the function of them ruling and reigning and having dominion before he considered what form should they have. Wow. And then I discovered that to be in the image of God had nothing to do with having a nose, eyes, mouth, ears, hands, and feet, but it had to do with the spiritual aspect of who God is. God is a spirit, and we worship God in spirit and in truth. Already, you're discovering worship as a function, not the form, not the form of how we worship, but that we're a worshiper in our core. So if God is a spirit and we're created in his image, image is a component of spirit. And then we were created after his likeness, and likeness is a component of soul. And then we were formed from the dust of the ground, and that is the makeup of our body. So spirit, soul, and body, we're in his image in spirit. We conform to his likeness in our soul, but our body was formed to house the inner image that we're to bear in the earth. So what's on the inside should functionally reflect on the outside. Instead of the other way around, our Western mindset thinks, form over function. And as long as I look good on the outside, as long as I look religious on the outside, 
then I should have a dominion or I should have dis discipline or I should have abilities. Just the opposite. Our core strength is from our identity. So for instance, the image of God gave us identity as sons and daughters of the most high. And all of his power is accessible through the identity before we have authority. So that's one of the things I learned in Hebrew, just right off the back, just studying Genesis. And I put that in my book, just talking about how I was so tenaciously desiring to know why God created the world the way he did, why there was six days and then the seventh day Sabbath. Why was there light first before there was anything else? I wanted this light. I wanted this illumination. So chapter one and chapter two was like my number one meal of the day. I would just devour it until the revelation finally came to me after years of questioning the text. So wow. that's already just kind of yeah. just right off the back. So I'm going to stop for a second because there's a lot to unpack even in that section. So maybe yes, we can go bite by bite. Yes, we need to. Yeah, I we need to talk about um, function over form. Um, yes. And I'd love for you to jump into because you talked about the forms, uh, the desires to be a form of a pastor or, yes. you know, um, yes, those titles. Of, yeah, the titles rather than the function first. Um, how do so? I'll, I'd love to talk about even the apostolic function today. Yeah, um, yeah, very good. Uh, you know, there there are some people that might say, you know, apostles and prophets they don't exist. But I've been around some people who can that are prophetic that they literally could tell you your address and yeah, so and they, they have an apostolic call on their life yes. yes yes so can you jump into even just what the freedom would be if we focus on function first versus form like what okay. kind of freedom would that give in the effects go ahead jump into it okay so because i'm a bible college instructor too one of the things i teach my students is the law of first mention so this is a general principle both in jewish and Christian hermeneutics that really helps us interpret scripture from the first time it was ever referenced. So if you think about the law of first mention, if you go back to what is function over form, I have to go back to again, man, because remember man was given dominion, but that authority was based on identity. So what was God thinking when he formed man from the dust of the ground? Well, if you think about man being from the ground, the first man is named Adam in English or in Hebrew, Adam, Adam. Now, if I add one more sound, I get the actual substance from which he was created. And that is Adama, Adama. Adama is the Hebrew word for ground. So here the play on words hebraically and poetically. Adam from Adama. Adama is ground. It literally can mean red clay from the earth. So the picture is God is the potter and man is the clay. That's seen throughout the scripture. Isaiah said it, Romans reiterates it. The idea is that God took our body from the place that we're connected to. We're connected to the earth. We're to have dominion on the earth. We're to have the authority in the earth. So he can't give us authority in a realm that we're not connected to. <laughs> so basically, when you have function over form, instead of thinking of man who is first in the image of God after his likeness, 
Let's think about the form that has a function behind it. What is the function of this red clay? Well, the verb that controls everything, let's talk about that for a minute. The verb that controls everything in Hebrew is what makes Hebrew different from every other language on the planet. And that is the fact that it's dynamic. Dynamic and not static. Static languages would describe a statue that is created in the image of a god or deity or a goddess. So the Greeks and the pagans would actually create statues that were static. So if you had a, a statue of Zeus, or if you had a statue of Apollo or Hercules, you would show a static image. So for instance, to stand is actually something that we think of something standing in a static position. In Hebrew, you don't actually describe what it means to be standing in a static position. You actually use the verb to arise. Because how do you go from seated to standing? You have to arise. So in other words, it is the function that creates the form. Wow. I can be seated on a throne or I can arise and stand. So to be stationary is not static in Hebrew. It's the action that gets you there, which is like faith before there's works. It's the action, the corresponding action that gets you to the place that you should be in life. So, so when you think about the verb that creates dynamic function, the verb in Genesis 2-7, and God formed man. He didn't create a form, but he formed man from the dust of the ground. So the, it's not form a noun, it is formed a verb. When God formed, the verb is yotzer. Yotzer is the same word used for a potter. And it means to squeeze into shape something that you're trying to create from what you already have in your mind as an image. So it means that God declares the end from the beginning and that God has a finished product in mind before he starts creating. And that's the same way man was given the ability to create. We have a creative nature about us. Look around our world. We're no longer living among trees and bushes. We have created things called technology and architecture and throughout human history, we have been creators because we have a creative God who gave us creative brain. And that creates a function before there's ever a form. That's what artists do. So God creates a masterpiece, Adam, and equipped in this masterpiece is all the ability he will ever need to have dominion to subdue the earth and to take rule over it. But without that identity of who he is, there is no authority. This is why people walk around sometimes not having the authority they were born and created to have because they have no identity of who they are. And it reminds me of my daughter's favorite pastime. She gets all, all of us as a family to watch the Avengers or DC movies, you know, and learn about Superman or Tony Stark, <laughs> Iron Man. And, and sometimes if you think about the one we just watched last night, you know, the two sons of Superman, you know, talking about, uh, you know, uh, Lois and Clark, you know, the, the, the two boys didn't know they had any specialty to them, speciality to them. 
And the parents, especially Superman, knew that one of them, at least possibly, could have superpowers. So they told the boys nothing about his identity. Therefore, they didn't know their identity. Because until you know your father, and who he is, you don't have identity as a son or daughter. So if you're created in his image, you got to know the identity. So because the boys did not know who Superman was, they didn't know who they were. They are the son of Superman. So they have possibly similar characteristics or abilities as their father. It turns out the, the more troubled son had the power and the ability, saves his own brother, the football player, the, the pro athlete that should have the power. But remember, it's not based on form, outward appearance. It was the least likely person that had the authority. Because the authority doesn't come from the outside, it comes from the inside. So when this young man found out that he had this power, all of a sudden there was a connection to his father that he never had before. Wow. How many of us need to have a connection to our Heavenly Father that we've never had before? Because we need to discover our true identity, which unveils our divine authority. So just looking at the function, the function of man being made from the ground is based upon the most pliable substance God could find as a potter to clay to form a vessel he could use. So makes sense. Adam from Adama. So what is a pastor? A pastor is actually a shepherd. So what's the purpose? To shepherd sheep that tend to get lost. What is an evangelist? He speaks good news or he shares good news. He's a messenger of good news. So therefore, his job is not to be the focal point but to just be the messenger of good news to people that are, that's heard only bad news. The apostle is a sent one. Why is it that he needs to be sent? Because nobody's going and preaching this good news or this gospel. So as an apostle, he's sent to territory and land that has not understood the divine authority of God. Therefore, to undo the principality or power that's ruling with depression and lack of identity and lack of confidence over the people that don't know their identity and who their God is, he must go in and uproot and take authority over the principality or power that is ruling over God's people, keeping them blind, keeping them from walking in their divine function. So what he does is he establishes a new authority. And so that new authority is the kingdom of God that he takes one step at a time, treading over serpents and scorpions, and he has the power to undo Satan's blindness over God's people. Why? Because he begins to establish a work of the good news in a territory that's only heard bad, that doesn't know who they are. So slaves become free. And sad people become glad and people of doubt become people of faith. Why? Because it's function over form. So the apostle functions very similarly to what we think of as a missionary. Because what is a missionary? Someone sent on a mission. What is the mission? The great commission of Jesus. It is to make disciples of every nation. 
We haven't done that for 2000 years. We've made Christians, we've made Baptists, we've made Pentecostals, we've made Charismatics, we've made Lutherans, we've made Presbyterians, we've made Mennonites. We, you could go through church history. We have lacked the true mission of Jesus when we don't have a co-mission. We are co-laborers. We are partners into establishing the kingdom of God on earth. And because that territorial land has no revelation of that, the prince of Persia could push back Gabriel when Daniel was praying for his people to get the revelation. Therefore, the person that has an apostolic call says, wait a minute, there's a calling on me to be sent on a mission to a territory or land that doesn't know God's divine authority or kingship. So I'm going to go establish that kingship in a place that doesn't know the power that's in the name of Jesus, the power that's in the name of our God. I don't know wow. how does that sit with you there? <laughs> that, I felt like you just prophesied our life. <laughs> Being sent to a place. And so just to move from Chantel and I from California to Greenville prophesied, you just prophesied, you didn't even know it. It was just, yeah. amen. So then you met a teacher. Yes. See, so I'm a rabbi, which means a master teacher. The word mm -hmm. rabbi comes from rabbah, which means to be great. Jesus said, do not even think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, the Torah or the prophetic writings, but I came to fulfill. And if you want to be great in the kingdom, do them first, then teach someone else how to do them. Yes. Make it easy. If you want to be least in the kingdom, break one of the least of these commandments and teach someone else it's okay to do it. So what are laws? Laws are principles of divine authority. So when you walk in a certain law and walk obedience to that law, you reap the benefits of that kingdom. So every kingdom has laws. Without the laws of the kingdom, you have no keys of the kingdom or authority of the kingdom to function by. So the purpose of commandments, the commandments are not to bind us. They're actually to loose us and free us into God's divine authority. So in my household, I teach my daughter how to walk in the principles of our household. For instance, we established well on that we wouldn't say the word stupid. I'll never forget the day that her teacher said the same thing. And I actually was watching a TV program. I said, boy, that's really stupid. And I realized, wait a minute, I just broke one of my own laws. And my daughter reminded me because she took on my identity. And she said, dad, remember in this household, we don't say stupid. So I told her, well, sometimes we can use silly instead, you know. And so the, you know, <laughs> the kiss method, keep uh, instead of keep it uh, uh, simple, stupid, stupid. It's, yeah. it's simple, silly. So we, we, we change our behavior to match our principles. The principles were the laws of God's kingdom that we want to establish in our daughter because we embody them and emulate them in function, not just in the form. Oh, we don't say this and we don't do that. We don't do this. That's legalism. See, whenever it comes from your heart on the inside, it's never legalism because now it's based on devotion and not obligation. When we put obligations on people that you have to do this and you have to do that instead of you get to do this, you're free to do that. And we're protecting you from this. Laws are meant to protect, but they're also meant to secure and establish. So when we change our dynamic and view of what a teacher is, the rabbis would teach kingdom principles, which is why Jesus in Matthew came as a rabbi to teach parables of the kingdom. 
to teach his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, to teach his disciples that he was the king of the Jews, which means he was the king of the Jewish people. Therefore, if he's king and sits upon the throne, he will establish God's rule and reign throughout the whole world, because one day the kingdoms of our of this world shall become the kingdoms of our God and his anointed Messiah. So therefore, Jesus had to first fulfill the prophecies that he was king to sit on David's throne, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And then he would establish that rule and reign in the whole world, which is what we call the messianic era or messianic age, the thousand year reign of Christ or the Messiah. So this is the whole goal of the Great Commission. We've got to prep every nation, disciple every nation to receive the divine authority of the kingdom because Jesus is going to rule and reign over these kingdoms. Therefore, we are preparing the way of the Lord. So teaching these kingdom principles or these laws of the kingdom or these keys of the kingdom unlocks and unleashes authority that we would be unaware of that we have unless we know our true identity. Mm. Wow. Powerful. So what are some keys of the kingdom that unlock uh, a greater level of authority? I know. Yeah. I just want you to just flow and tea. Yes. Okay. So now here's one of the things I think is uh, missed. Sometimes Christians have a tendency to teach, well, all you got to do is just, you know, love God, love people. And they just walk away with that. Now, the greatest principle in the Torah, Jesus said, which is the greatest commandment of priority is to love God with all your heart, soul, and strength found in what we call the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, it's usually four through nine is the full passage that we recite. I recite at least twice a day. Most Orthodox Jews can recite it up to three times a day. We usually start with Shema in the morning and we do the Shema blessing at night called the bedtime Shema. Boy, I'd love to unpack that one day. Powerful revelation behind Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. But the idea is you can't love your neighbor as yourself unless you love yourself. And you can't love yourself unless you love God. Because remember, when God created Adam, Adam was the first created son of God, according to Luke chapter 3 and Jesus' genealogy from his mother Mary or Miriam, as we say in Hebrew. So the idea is that Jesus is the only begotten son, but Adam is the first created son. So the genealogy in Luke 3 says that from Jesus, his mother's father, Heli, we have a whole genealogy that goes backwards to the first man, Adam, who is the first son of God, it says. So Adam's authority came from his identity. Love is the only thing that restores the identity, which is why Jesus was sent for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What does that mean not to perish? Well, people perish because of a lack of vision. So when you have no vision of who you are in identity, you have no vision of your authority. Therefore, love is not just this sweet, flowery, hippie thing of, oh, just love God. Oh, I just love God. No, it's loving God is based upon him first loving us. Why does he love us? He created us for a purpose. He created us with a function. He created us to have authority 
based on identity. So when you receive that love that Jesus came to show you when he died for you, he didn't just die to save you from your sins. He died and rose to resurrect you to your purpose. What's your purpose? Your original function, right? To have dominion. So here's the key. The love of God not un only unlocks those sins from your life and looses them, it unlocks your identity as a spiritual being because the love of God is shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. So when you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes in, he gives you a love for God you've never known before because you realize he loves you. Therefore, that releases the kingdom of principle of loving your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus did no miracles unless there was faith working by love. So his compassion that he shared when he raised the dead or healed the sick or opened blind eyes and healed the leper, it was the compassion the text tells us in the gospels that actually released the authority. Because truly our identity is that we are sons and daughters of most high. How can you be a son of a father without knowing that he loves you as his child? So us loving God the way he loves us and loving others is a kingdom principle. Every day you wake up, you got to know who you are. I'm loved by God. I'm mm. blessed by God. God says to Israel, I'll love you, I'll bless you, and I will multiply you. What do we do as disciples? We multiply disciples. We're supposed to multiply. That's a kingdom principle. Everything that God did was to multiply the people of God. When the enemy came in to destroy the Jewish people, whether you're talking about Pharaoh, whether you're talking about uh, one of the kings of the north in Assyria, whether you're talking about Hitler, Jews always multiplied in the midst of a decrease because the principle is that God has blessed us. And if he's blessed us like he did in the garden, we're to be fruitful and multiply. Amen. And we, and we can't have dominion until we're fruitful and we're multiplying. Because this power we have is based upon the inner reality of who we are. And so that dynamic puts your head up high, causes you to walk into a room. Even if there's demonic forces, your feet are already trampling them. Why? You don't have to fear what the enemy could do to you. You already know what your power does to him. So therefore, it's like a boss that walks into a room that doesn't have to say, hey, I'm the boss and I'm here. The moment he walks into the room, everyone gets to work because <laughs> yes. of the authority, the quiet authority he walks in. That's the confidence of God's love. God's love restores our identity inwardly so that our authority can be expressed outwardly. And that authority should not be to dominate people, but to take dominion. Because the problem with dominion without love, it's, it's not considering the person and it could dominate and create slaves. So sometimes even in our Christian faith, we've created slaves of the kingdom instead of sons and daughters. They can Ooh. be servants. <laughs> My God. Wow. Wow. So then so what we do is we, we take that flowery love thing that we talk about in the gospel. Oh, God loves you. Love everybody. And, and we don't separate it from our authority. Because remember, authority is connected to identity. And if love restores our authority, because it restores our identity, then we're able to do the miraculous because of our love for people. When you go in as a, with an apostolic call, even as a missionary or on a missionary trip, 
The reason you go is because these hurting people, you feel this love for them. You want to heal their broken bodies. You want to restore their, their, their tormented minds. You want to free them from the lies of the enemy. It's the love of God that has the power to transform us and transform any community, city, household, business, in every single sphere and realm that is in this world and in this universe, the king who loves us so much is always the one who restores through his authority and power. And this is why we pray to God this way, Avinu Malkenu, which means our father and our king, because he loves us as a father, but he's king with great authority over the kingdom. And we never divorce those two concepts because we don't want the king that is a judge without his love as a father. As a father, he corrects us and he doesn't correct us because he hates us. He corrects us because he loves us. But as a king, he must take authority over every demonic force that tries to rob us of our true identity. So therefore you keep those two together. A God of love and a God of wrath are not separate gods. God is only wrathful when he is bringing judgment against anything and anyone or any spirit that tries to rob his children of their true identity. We'll be right back with this incredible interview. Have you ever wanted to walk in the supernatural, but you don't know what simple steps to take? Have you ever wanted to experience more of the authority that Christ has given you come out of you and actually God use you at greater levels? Well, if that's you here at Born to Rule Global, we want to equip you to help you walk in the authority that Christ has given to you through your rulership identity in Him. And so because of that, we created a simple PDF that shows you four ways to increase your authority in the kingdom of God. And number four will surprise you, it'll challenge you, but it's also one of the greatest way, if not the greatest way, to increase your authority. And so if you want to receive that, click the notes, the, the link in our show notes. You can find that, download that PDF, and begin to walk in your authority. Now, let's get back to this incredible interview. Wow, powerful, powerful. If you're listening to this right now, listen to it over and over again. Take it in, even, even if you have to do it three times. Um, <laughs> Just the wisdom and the, man, my heart is exploding. My mind is exploding. My spirit's expanding. Man, so powerful. I want to ask you, because it's one of my favorite things that we get to talk about when we talk about authority. Um, I've asked you about this story in 2 Kings chapter 1 with Elijah. And this yeah. is the second time Elijah calls down fire from heaven. The first time is with the prophets of Baal. But the second time is when a king sends out a captain of 50 to go to capture him. And it's three different captains. And Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down and consume you. And it goes, boom. And the second time, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down and consume you. And the third guy's like, I know you're a man of God. Please come with me. Don't kill me. And I want to know, like, how was Elijah able to, because many people would probably read that and say, oh, if any, if I heard anybody say that, they'll be testing God. If I'm a man of God, you know, do this or do that. But Elijah did it. So I'd love for you to like explain authority in that way. And just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So let's start with the name Elijah. 
The name Elijah in Hebrew is Eliyahu. Eli means my God. So on the cross, Jesus said, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatani. So this, this concept, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli means my God. So Yahoo is part of the name of God, what we call the tetragrammaton. It is three letters from the four-lettered name of God. Tetragrammaton means four letters. Tetra and grammaton, like grammar, four letters. So the four-lettered name of God is one of those curious names. It has so much power. It has all the power of existence. So the letter Yud and He that we hear in Hallelujah is very clear. Now, the second uh, uh, syllable of that, um, or possibly second of three syllables of that name, depending on if it's a two-syllable three, we don't know how to pronounce 100% because the secret is only among the high priest family, the Levites, and those that are Kohanim or priests, the part of the priesthood. So within Jewish culture, it's kept secret so that the masses of people are not abusing the name because to invoke the name is to invoke every power of existence. In fact, magicians try to use abracadabra, which is literally a perversion of what we speak is what we create. I won't get into that today, but do <laughs> abracadabra is, a, is Hebrew that has been uh, used as an a way to invoke the power of the name that is all existence. So in, when we actually say that God is the great I am, do you know that's actually incorrect? Mm. In Tell Hebrew, us. it doesn't say I am that I am. It says I will be who I will be. Because the verb root that we find in every Hebrew word is called a shoresh, a root. It's three letters that make up any form of the word. Uh, best way to describe that would be like taking an English word like sleep. If I say sleep, sleeping, and slept, there would be three letters that show up in all forms of that word. We would call that the root, even though that's not how we usually describe English. The root letters would be the S, the L, and the P. Sleep, slept, then changes, puts a suffix at the end, the T, and sleeping puts another suffix, ing at the end. But we would recognize sleep, sleeping, and slept all as forms of one verb to lay your head down, go to sleep, or to no longer be conscious in awareness like you're awake. So when you talk about Hebrew, we have different vowels that we can put in between the letters, or we can have a prefix or suffix in the front or end of the word. But if the root letters are the same, it carries the same function. So, for instance, the word in Hebrew that God's name comes from is haya. Why don't you try that? Haya. Haya. Okay. Haya means the verb to be was in the past. So there actually is no Hebrew form of the word to be, verb to be, in the present. It doesn't exist. We don't use it. It's just non-existent. It's understood. The only thing that we actually have as a way to describe the verb to be in the past is the word was. So the verb is used future tense for God's name. He will be. So for instance, a lot of people use hallelujah 
but they recognize it's spelled J-A-H, Ja. That's a whole Gutenberg Press German language uh, lesson. I'm not going to do it today. But it's pronounced Ya because there's no J sound in Hebrew. But the Ja part is a part of what many JWs say is the name of God. You have to spell it this way, J-E-H-O-V-A-H. So we, we know that that is not, one, it's not kosher in Jewish thought because we don't want to take God's name in vain. Plus, it's not the way it's pronounced because there's no J name in Hebrew. But the root of the word actually is very similar to what God told Moses. He says, I will be who I will be. Aye, asher, aye. And this is the same root, haya, but future tense. So it literally means I will be who I will be. When the plagues came down, they had never seen God demonstrate his dominion and power like that. Those 10 plagues were the fingers of God. The finger, by Elohim, the finger of God, 10 plagues came down, just like we have 10 fingers. Just like the Torah was written on the tablets by the finger of God. It's the authority of God. Jesus said, I drive out demons, demons with the by finger the finger of God, of God yeah. by the authority yeah. of God. And the kingdom of God so, has come upon you, yeah. Yes, which is the authority of the word of God. That's why he wrote in the sand words from the Torah to stone the man and the woman caught in the act of adultery. And they only had the woman. So they had no authority based upon the authority of God to do that. So they had to drop their stones or they would be considered unfair, unjust judges and could be stoned themselves for being found in contempt of court. So Jesus is using the authority of God to do all this. Now, what am I saying about the name of God? The name of God, because we're going to talk about uh, invoking that name. The name of God is so powerful, so holy. It is the creative force or function of his words. So we are very careful as Jews, especially as rabbis, to not use that name in vain. So I will avoid, even for teaching purpose, avoid for my audience, even if there's someone Jewish watching, saying the traditional Christian form of the name that starts with a J. But I will tell you what we do instead to invoke the name. We actually don't invo invoke the name of the Tetragrammaton when we do the blessing in Hebrew. We actually use Adonai, which means master, Lord, to describe his authority. But the function that we have in the back of our minds and what's in our heart is to use El Shaddai, the God of more than enough, the all-sufficient one, to release all the prosperity of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from God himself. So when we do that, we actually create that awareness through this symbol. This is the letter Sheen for Shaddai. This is the same shape of the letter in Hebrew, the 21st letter of the Hebrew language, Sheen, that actually speaks of the Shekinah. So this is the Shekinah that would come upon Israel when the blessing of God was invoked. It's also the same letter for the name, name, the name of God, which is Shem. We say Baruch Hashem. Blessed be the name. So you're invoking the name, which invokes the presence, the Shekinah glory, the Shekinah. And you're also invoking Shaddai, Psalm 91. He that dwelt in the secret place of the Most High, El Elyon, will abide under the shadow of Shaddai, the Almighty. It means all sufficiency. Everything you need comes from him. So when we do the blessing at the end of our services, the benediction, we're invoking the name 
that God revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I did not reveal the yud heh vav heh tetragrammaton. I only revealed to them the essence, the function of me being their provider, me being the sufficient one, the almighty. And so sometimes we get caught up on saying, well, you got to say it this way, or it's got to be done this way. And I let people have the freedom in their own prayer time to say whatever form of the name that it identifies with them. But publicly, I teach my students to be careful on mm -hmm. how you invoke the name publicly, because people can misconstrue and abuse the name of God. And the power mm -hmm. is not in pronunciation. The power is in the awareness of the name mm -hmm. you're invoking. And so you're invoking the name not from words because it's not magic, it's not abracadabra. It is actually having a revelation because people perish without a vision. So it's having a revelation of the meaning of that name. So when we talk about Elijah, back on topic, Eliyahu, I know I take your uh, 40 years- Oh, to we love it. Before Let's I lead you to the it. promised land. Yes. It's okay, I have a method to my madness. So now when you think about Eliyahu, Eli, like Elohim, creator, means he's creator and judge, but Yah or Yahu actually is a form of the name of God that's found in the blessing of number six, 24 through 26. So what the name actually says is my God is Yah. So what that means is my God is the one who brings all things into existence. Everything that exists has its origin in him who was and him who will be. So whoever God was is who he will be. Well, who did God reveal himself to Moses to be? An all-consuming fire. So how did Israel know that the presence of God was there? Ezekiel saw this fire. He says, from the waist up, he's fire. And from the waist down, he's fire sitting upon the throne. And so when Elijah declared, if I'm a man of God, he was actually invoking the Shekinah, the Shekinah, the presence of God to show up the way it did when Solomon set up the temple. The presence of God, the fire of God came down, consumed the altar because it was invoking who God is, not just what he does. And when you know who God is, there's no there's no question on what he will do because you already know what he will do because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what he did, he will do because who he was is who he is and will be. That's the consistency of God. He doesn't change. So what do prophets do? Now, if you're Moses, you talk to God face to face, which is not the same as saying you and I are standing in, in, in front of each other and, and seeing each other's faces because no man has seen God's face and could mm -hmm. live. Yep. Face to face is a Hebrew idiom that means direct communication with no need for a mediator because it's function over form. All it means is I have direct communication with God and I don't need an angel to say thus save the Lord. I have clear communication without the need of a, a mediator because Moses will become the mediator of the covenant just like Jesus becomes the mediator of the new covenant. And a prophet like Moses, Jesus became. So when you actually think of this concept of Elijah invoking the, the, the authority of God, when he says, I'm a man of God, what he's literally saying is, 
I'm a prophet of God because the prophet of God was called the man of God. That was the number one best title for Moses, the man of God. Remember, Adam was the man of God as the son of God. And sons don't need to ask their father what they stand for or believe in or will do because the son knows the authority of the father. So just like Jesus knew the authority of his father, he didn't need to say, thus saith the Lord. He said, verily, verily, I say to you, right? Wow. So we actually see Elijah walking in the same authority of the prophet Moses to say, if I'm a man of God. This is very similar to Satan questioning Jesus. If you're the son of God, do these miracles. Jesus is like, I don't need to prove to you that I'm the son of God to, to do miracles for you because it's not magic turning stones to bread. That was the first temptation. But knowing that you're a son of God means you're a man created by God with divine authority. Therefore, the prophet Moses talked to God with direct communication, but every other prophet was a seer. They would see the vision of God or experience God's communication through a dream. So visions and dream were, dreams were the number one way that God revealed himself. So we would assume just like every other prophet, every prophet taps into the mind of God through vision or through dreams. So there's no need for God to say, Elijah, do this, do that, because he didn't have to do it for Adam. Adam never named the animals because God said, name this a cat, name this a dog, and name this thing over here a tree. No. What was Adam doing? Adam was actually looking at what God created, seeing the function of it, and naming everything that God created based upon its function, not its form. So when you think of everything that God revealed through Adam and what he named creation and all the animals and everything in the universe, this is why he had dominion over it. Because you can have dominion over something that you don't understand or can describe. So for instance, when I worked at Lucky's grocery store, they were training me to be the store manager. They had to train me in every department because I had to know how the dairy box worked and I had to know how the forklift worked and I need to know how the register worked and I need to know how systems worked because the only way to have dominion over something is to understand its function and how it functions. So Elijah understands God's power and authority and knew that the prophets of Baal and the prophetesses of Ashtoreth, they had no divine authority. They are false images made by man that has no power. They have eyes that don't see. They have ears that can't hear. They have a mouth that can't speak. And when a prophet prophesies, they're prophesying out of the mind of God. They're prophesying God's will. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the thoughts I have concerning you. The prophet has tapped into those divine thoughts, will, and plan of God. Therefore, they don't need to ask God if it's okay if they call down fire from heaven. But that was a declaration to everybody listening and watching. I'm, I'm going to do something now that's going to show you the divine authority that I'm walking in. Wow. It wasn't for God's clarification. It was for man's clarification. So it's just like the miracles of Jesus. It wasn't for God to know that he was a son. It was for the people to know that he was the son of God or that he was the Messiah. He said, for the very works that I do, 
you should know that I'm the one. He said that even to John the Baptist, are you the one or shall we look for another? Aren't the blind eyes opened? <laughs> Can't the deaf hear? Aren't the dead raised? Those were signs of his function. If he's doing the function of the Messiah, he therefore is the Messiah. We say it like this, if he walks like a duck, talks like a duck, it's probably a duck. <laughs> <laughs> and this is how you know a true believer. If you're walking divine authority, if you're walking in your identity, you must be someone who's a son or daughter of the Most High. And for too long, the church has functioned off of titles that are supposed to prove who we are. Well, because we're a Pentecostal church, that means we're on fire for God. No, I've been to a lot of Pentecostal churches that are dead. Yep. Because they have the title and they have the logo on the outside of the dove or the flame doesn't mean they're walking in divine authority. I could actually meet a Baptist walking in authority than some Pentecostals that have forgotten who they are and what their purpose is. So it's not based upon the outside form or what looks like. You can have a form of godliness and deny God's power. Hmm. Wow. So wow. I think it's important to know that Elijah was doing the same thing that the prayer of Solomon did. Solomon knew who he was. He was praying to God directly. Everyone else just heard it. So it was a demonstration, not for Elijah, but what does Elijah's name mean? Yah is my God. You guys have the gods of Baal and Babylon and Assyria, but my God is the only true God. So when your power is based upon your reflection of who he is and not who you think you are, then remember, if I'm only the prophet or messenger of God, then my message doesn't come from me. Even Jesus said that. The words and the works I do, they're not my own. They come from my father. If Jesus would have ever had to, to defend himself to the masses, then he would be revealing that he didn't know who he really was. He was trying to prove. You see, Jesus doesn't come back with arrows like the false prophet of the white horse of Revelation coming to conquer. No, he comes back with many crowns on his head because he's already conquered. We don't need to prove anything as a believer. We've already conquered. Do you know that we don't even need to bind the devil? Go into that. Go into that. Okay, so let's go there for a minute. <laughs> in, in, in Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18, Jesus talks about the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom actually stem from Isaiah 22, 22, which is found in Revelation 3, 7. The key of David, right? That he opened doors that no man can shut and he shuts doors no, more, no man can open. So when you know your divine authority, you have this key, you can open doors that no man can shut, shut doors no man can open because you realize whatever God has opened is open and whatever God shuts is shut. So the idea of the keys of the kingdom go back to the authority of a king. The only person that possesses the power of the, uh, the keys of the kingdom is the king himself. But kings never open their own doors. They have a porter or a door opener that has been handed the authority. I told this to my, uh, my PA on Sunday for the West Campus of Destiny Church, Cathedral City, California. I said, hey, guess what? You know that I gave you my car keys. That means you can't just go drive off with my car, but I've given you authority with an assignment. So for instance, I would love for you to 
you know, do th this, this, and that, the other, I, you know, he was going to take my, my bag, it has my computer in it, it has my, 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 my iPad in there, he was going to secure the offering, he was going to secure a couple things that I needed to put in the car for after service, he was going to get the car ready for me. Now, those weren't just jobs or duties of a slave. No, it's actually an assignment of a divine authority that was given to him for function. Why? These things need to happen. And it doesn't matter who the person is with the keys. It matters the power that they possess to finish the divine assignment they've been given. So for instance, I told him, I said, even as you're pulling open the theater door for me to walk in, because we actually have service in the theater. I said, you know, you're just like Peter. Peter was given the keys of the kingdom. The disciples were given keys of authority because you never open your own door. Prior to Peter, it was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the breaker that opens up the passageway for the king to come in. Because in those days, on a dusty road, a king coming in a carriage or in a chariot or on a horse, when he comes into town, the road is bumpy. You prepare the way by removing the rocks of hindrance out of the way. And when you come to the city, the doorkeeper, the, the one with the keys, is going to open the door for the king to come in. So for instance, you and I are porters. We have keys. We open doors. It's not our power. We've been given that authority. So whatever we bind on earth should be bound in heaven. Whatever we loose on earth should be loosed in heaven. That's not actually a reference to the devil. It's actually a reference to a rabbi who would look at the scriptures, especially the law of Moses, and people would come and say, what do we do in this situation? My neighbor stole my goat. Well, he would go to the law of Moses and say, well, what I see here in the text is there's, a, there's something binding here. It says, if you, you've stolen, this is what you have to do to restore it, and he would have to follow that authority. He could also loosen the interpretation on it by giving more grace in a situation where the text gives room for grace. So a situation that came up is the woman that was caught in the act of adultery. What was binding is you had to bring the man and the woman. But he let her go free because whatever he allowed is what was bound and whatever he uh, or, or permitted. And then whatever he disallowed is what is loosed. So in those days, the rabbis had the divine authority sitting on the seat of Moses to bind or loose. I'm having trouble hearing you. Sorry, Siri's trying to jump <laughs> into this conversation. So this idea of binding and loosing is referring to, it says two or three are gathered in my name based upon two or three witnesses everywhere it's established. That comes from Deuteronomy 17 and 19. What that means is the law of Moses says you cannot accuse someone of a crime with one witness, because it could be skewed. You have to have two or three witnesses and a minimum of two or three judges to rule in that situation. Did you hear that rule? Rule? Mm -hmm. So the two or three judges would make a ruling based upon what the law of Moses said. So the woman caught in the act of adultery, there were a couple of passages you could go to. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay, if you commit adultery, the man and the woman is to be both brought out. They're to be stoned, but you can't stone them unless there's two or three witnesses. So there has to be corroborating witnesses or evidence to prove that both of them had committed this crime. If there was no man brought to be stoned along with the woman caught in the act, caught in the act, then what evidence do you have that she slept with anyone? If they were both caught in the act, you should have brought them both. 
Could it be that it was a fellow Pharisee that they were covering up for? Who knows? But what Jesus writes in the sand is probably a few words in Hebrew that gave us the passage in Leviticus that you were to bring the man and the woman out. All they had to do is see what he wrote in the sand. He was writing the word of God from Leviticus and they had to drop their stones because they had broken that law and they were not following the Torah's binding agreement. So when you talk about bind, it's actually referred to a binding agreement where two or three gathered in my name because the three judges or two judges would have to come together and make a binding agreement. Yes, the word of God says this, therefore this is our ruling. So notice we always use it for prayer, two or three gathered in my name. Anything they should ask, and that's because we uh, attribute praying to asking, but it actually referring to even making decisions in your life. So when you went to the judges of Israel, they would help you make the decision or make a ruling based upon what the word of God says. And you have to have two or three witnesses, could even be scriptures to base the ruling on. So you don't need to bind the devil because he's already bound 2000 years ago yes, by the finished work of Jesus. On the cross, yes. All you need to do is remind the devil that he is rendered powerless, that Jesus stripped him of all power and authority. Because it sounds like when you say, I bind you, that you're trying to do something Jesus already did. Your yes. authority is based upon the finished work, not you trying to do something that's already done. And then we don't need to loose the Holy Spirit or angels because guess what? They're not bound. The Holy Spirit's not bound. Angels are not bound. But we can declare the authority that we have because they're ministering flames of fire for the heirs of salvation. Therefore, we thank God that he has protected us with his angels as 90, Psalm 91 tells us. So instead of trying to do it as if we're in, we're the one with the origin of the power to do it, we remind not only God, but the enemy and anyone we're praying for of what God has already done and established. That's where our true authority as a believer is, is in the identity of us being a son or daughter of the father who has a finished plan in place. Amen. So I teach wow. my students never to say, I bind you devil. Instead of saying, Satan, you are rendered powerless in this situation. You have no in authority. Because in Jesus' name, that's the authority we have is in his name, not in our own. Because if this is the case and we can bind the devil today, do we need to bind him again tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day? Instead of reminding him that he's rendered powerless because that's when Satan walks away from Jesus after the third temptation because all Jesus says is it is written, it is written, it is written. And when you remind the devil what is already written, the authority doesn't come from you, but it comes from the word and he leaves you alone because he has no more tricks to play on you. Wow. Wow, that's so powerful. So powerful. All right, so to, to our last two questions, last two questions, so, so powerful. Wow, I'm going to have to re-listen to this myself. Uh, but last two questions. First question is, let's say you pass away tomorrow and everything about you, all books, all teachings, all messages, this podcast, even yours with your YouTube channel, uh, everything is gone, but you had the power to implant one question in people's mind for them to live at the highest level that God wants them to live at. What would that one question be that you would put in their mind that they could ask themselves and they would elevate? What would that one question be? I would say it's probably based upon my life's mission, which is this disciple for Jesus. And I would ask them, have they become a fully devoted disciple of Jesus? 
because based on that, the word disciple is the word discipline. And if this is not something we've taken as a lifestyle, we'll do it one day, but we won't do it another day. And therefore there's no power or authority in any principle that's not put in place or is consistent. Consistency is always king. I can't lose weight without consistency. I can't build muscle without consistency. I can't build a business without consistency. If we're not disciplined disciples, then what we lack is the power that Jesus gave us to go into the whole world and make disciples of others when we've not been discipled ourselves. Hmm. All right. So this last one, last <laughs> question. <laughs> I'm just, my body's blown. Um, so this last one, what is one piece of wisdom you would give? I know you talked a lot about even just jumping into authority and, and even invoking the name of God, which at the end of this, we're yeah. going to ask rabbi to do that for us. Um, but what's one piece of wisdom you would give for someone to walk in their authority in Christ? You could tell them one thing. You know, when I look at the ministry of Jesus for three and a half years, I question, why didn't Jesus just pop into the scene, grab a couple guys, say, hey, I'm the Messiah, die that day, resurrect within 24 hours, go back to the Father, sit on the right hand, and just wrap this thing up in, you know, just maybe, maybe 48 hours max and be done with everything. Why did he wait 4,000 years from the fall in the garden to show up on the scene? Why did we have Moses after Abraham and David after Moses and Solomon? And why did we have to wait? What was this chronology all about? Why did God not just wrap everything up in one minute? And of course, Many of you might know that God created the world in six days and he rested the seventh, which is a number of perfection or completion. So when God does something, he doesn't do it in a rush. He doesn't rush his way through a process when there's purpose. I always say it, there's a method to the madness. So Jesus took three and a half years, the same years that Elijah shut up the heavens so that it wouldn't rain until he with divine authority and identity prayed for rain and it rained. The Bible says in James chapter five, every single one of us have the effectual fervent power of prayer to do exactly what Elijah did when we know who we are. So Jesus took three and a half years to train disciples to know who they are so they could not only become who they were meant to be, but they could fulfill the divine function for why they were created. So what I really believe is that since Jesus took that time to do that, you know, we have to understand that the process of the three and a half years, right, is very key because even the tribulation period, in the book of Revelation of seven years based upon Daniel's 70th week of years prophecy we, uh, in chapter nine of Daniel, is actually broken up into three and a half and three and a half. And this is a beautiful picture because the seven year process of the book of, of the tribulation period is based upon the year of release, the Shemitah. And so every seven years, the, the land and the slave was released from bondage, which is exactly what the gospel does for each one of us. It releases us from bondage bankruptcy was based upon this principle of Deuteronomy 15.1, the year of release, the Shemitah. The latter half, 
three and a half years is where Jesus comes back and releases every captive soul from captivity. The first three and a half years, two witnesses, probably Moses and Elijah, prepare the way of the Lord. So for three and a half years, they are discipling Israel to know their divine authority so that 144,000 can walk in and step into their call. And that the last three and a half, God could set up Jesus returning uh, uh, as the Messiah, as the King. So I think when it comes down to the, the, the personal responsibility each one of us have, we have to look at the model of Jesus. Jesus discipled people that would disciple others. And I, I know that when it comes to my life's call, I'm called to disciple people. And I had to sometimes be discipled in areas without a discipler. I had pastors, I had leaders, I had parents, I had friends, and I had people that would try to pour into my life, but each one of them played a certain role that I'd have to bring them all together and all those life experiences to actually equal what Jesus did for the, for the 12. I wish we could take on the full model of Jesus and actually fulfill the great commission by being like him. It, you know, that power of being like Jesus is the greatest example that we have. We were not created just to believe in Jesus. We were created to be like him. And I think this is one of the, of the problems that we have in our society is that for 2000 years, we have just been living this existence of doing church, uh, creating big empires and names and ministries but we forgot the mission of Jesus. The only way the world's going to change is one person at a time, the person we see in the mirror. And we have to be willing to be disciple. We have to be willing to change. We have to be willing to um, be that kind of person in this generation that is like a disciple of Jesus walking down a dusty road of a first century rabbi and following what he says and what he does to become who he is. It does not yet appear what we're going to be like, but we know when we see him as he really is, we will be like him. Until then, we purify ourselves even as he is pure. So he's the model. I'm not even sure if I answered the question. Give me that question again, because I feel like there's an aspect <laughs> of that question. I, I, I got yeah. on a rabbi trail instead of a rabbi trail, but it was a good trail anyway. What's what one piece of wisdom is? you can give to someone for them to walk in their authority. And I think even just what you're saying is be willing to submit yourself to discipleship because that also gives authority. Like yes. to submit yourself gives you authority. Yeah, so for instance, if there's the calling on your life to be a prophet, you'd have to sit under the mantle of a prophet. So Elisha and Elijah. To be like a rabbi, you have to sit as a teacher would be sitting under a, you know, a teacher is learning from another teacher. So basically you can't be a teacher without first being a student. So you sit under that teacher to learn the way the, the rabbi thinks, the way he speaks, the way he interprets scripture, the way he rightly divides the word of truth, the way he communicates his curriculum. Everything about being a teacher is first becoming a student. A pastor shepherds sheep, but we don't often think as pastors how to raise up other pastors. Because in the midst of the sheep or in the midst of the 12, there's a Peter, there's a James, there's a John there. There might even be a gospel writer like a Matthew. And I think we sometimes overlook, you know, just because we want to put people in ministry because there's a position that needs to be, you know, filled. We just find people to fill positions 
instead of finding people to discover purpose. So discipleship is the key. It is my life's mission. I feel that God is going to pass this pandemic, open up the nations to, to me, to those that I'm discipling, to go into those nations, to disciple and raise up next generation, full capacity leaders that have the power that Jesus intended for the believer to have. And then every territory and every principality and power that has people dominated with spiritual blindness from the God of this little G world, we actually know that that power will be diminished by the greater light of the revelation of who we are and the authority we have. Identity before authority. So if we can teach people who they are, they will know what they can do. And until they discover the image, the likeness, and the form, spirit, soul, and body, they will miss it every time because they will give Jesus their body, but they won't give him their heart. They'll give the soul, but they won't give their spirit. There has to be a completion of wholeness, spirit, soul, and body. That's what we wish on people when we say shalom, shalom, or Shabbat shalom, or we say, how are you? Mashlamcha, same root of shalom, wholeness. We're constantly in the Jewish world through the language of Hebrew, a pure language, wishing you wholeness. And we have Amen. broken people and broken lives that need to experience wholeness. They need to be restored to the Adam and Eve of Genesis before the fall. And Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came to do that. That's what he came to do in us and through us. Amen. Wow. Wow. We are so honored. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you so much. My goodness. Um, so if people want to stay connected with you, Rabbi, yeah. you know, whether follow you or connect, um, everything you share, I'm going to put it, a link in the show notes, but where can they get connected with you? Okay. So first of all, if you just Google my name, Rabbi Brian Belechi, Brian, B-R-I-A-N, Belechi, B-I-L-E-C-I. Most of my social media contact information will be found. And you'll probably discover our website for our Messianic Synagogue, which is simchatyeshua.com. Long Hebrew phrase. It just means the joy of Jesus. Simchat. And I'll link to that. I'll link to yeah. that as well. Okay. So that, that's one thing you'll find even just by Googling my name. My uh, handle for my Instagram um, is rabbi underscore Brian. And you can basically contact me that way. You can also message me on Facebook. I don't put rabbi on that one because it's my older social media platform. I just have Brian Belechi. But pretty much if you also check us out on YouTube, Rabbi Brian Belechi, um, you will basically see most of my synagogue messages where I do most of my teaching from or our Zoom teachings that we not only do one-on-one -on -one or group sessions, we even Zoom in other countries like India, Ghana. Uh, we have students from the Philippines and South Africa and, and Australia, New Zealand. And we have people that are following and really wanting to learn this. In fact, I have discovered that the nations are so hungry for this and we're in the perfect situation. And you know what? Pandemic or no pandemic, it forced us to use these tools to go online and share what we do in small settings for a global impact. And so, yeah, you can contact me that way through YouTube or through Instagram or Facebook, or you can also 
contact me through Destiny Church. And uh, so there's many ways that you can contact me. Our campus is in Cathedral City at the Mary Pickford Theater. But, you know, there's just so many ways that I'm sure you'll share the links in the description. Mm -hmm. There's so many ways for you to get connected. And trust me, it doesn't matter where you live in the world. We will make ourselves available to you. Me and my wife, we really love people. We love raising up sons and daughters of the house. We love to raise up sons and daughters that know that they're children of the most high God. And I think that's one of the things that we have over a lot of uh, discipleship um, models is that we take it personal to mentor people on a one-to-one -one basis, not just you join this class, whatever, that's all great. But if I don't get to know you, how can I discover who you are? And if we don't know your identity, how will we discover or see a display of your authority? Amen. And I can attest to that firsthand. Chantel and I can attest to him and his wife, Magali. Yes, they're incredible. So check them out. All right, Rabbi, last thing. This is what yes. I've been waiting for. Yes. Can you invoke the name of the Lord on us? Yes, um, yes. And yes. we just will receive. So if you're still out here till the end, you're part of the 2% who are going to receive the evoking of the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, we do this all the time when it comes to the benediction, which basically means blessing. And in Hebrew thought, we not only bless God, which means we're ascribing to God the greatness and the power and the blessing he already possesses. We're not adding to his greatness. We're actually magnifying how great he is. So therefore, when the same blessing that blesses him comes down and blesses the people, there is a manifestation of the Shekinah glory that shows up. So when I pray, I believe in praying through. I believe in praying to the presence comes down. I believe in praying to the joy comes and the spirit is overwhelmingly flowing in the person I'm praying for and even myself. There's usually a direct contact, a flow of power that's happening, whether you're laying hands on a person or I'm praying for a person by some other vehicle or, or platform. And so even right now, when we pray, we're gonna be believing God that the presence of God is gonna to touch you right where you're at. Amen. And I think this is the power of knowing God's name. It's not the power of pronouncing it. It's the power of being aware of its power. And when you walk in that authority, even if you don't actually say in the name of Jesus, or as we say in Hebrew, Beshem Yeshua, we're actually, operating that name because you know here's another thing that i want to throw out there before i pray there's a tendency to use in the name of jesus as some kind of like a mantra or magic or formula and it's none of the above when a rabbi would send a student on assignment to do something on their behalf they were doing it in their name because it invokes divine authority it's the power of attorney so the talmud and the mishnah jewish commentary on the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament uses this constantly when it says, Rabbi Jonathan said in the name of Rabbi Asher. I'm just throwing those names out, arbitrarily made them up. But that would be a typical way that you would describe that a student learned this principle from their rabbi. So you could actually go back even further. You could say, Rabbi Jonathan said in the name of Rabbi Asher, in the name of Rabbi Judah. So depending on how many generations back this authority goes, or this teaching originates, they will quote the, the name of that rabbi and say that they were learning this or they were teaching this in the name of the other rabbi. So when the disciples actually said in the name of Jesus, they're saying, we learned this authority and this identity from the rabbi that taught it to us and gave us the right 
to use it. To as many as believe on him, he gave them the exousia, the, the authority to use that power, to know that they are sons and daughters of God. So as we pray right now, I want you to receive that divine authority and presence in your life. I want you to consider the fact that God wants you to walk in that divine authority yourself. And anything that I do right now, you can do. So this is based upon number six, 24 through 26. I close out my services with it. I'm actually going to invoke the name by a mental image you will have when you see me do this. You're going to know that this represents El Shaddai. This is the name that God revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that unlocks all the prosperity, sufficiency from God that you will lack nothing that nothing will be missing, that nothing will be broke, broken in your life, and that you will have and experience divine wholeness. So that name El Shaddai actually means like the word die, enough. So we say it means that God is more than enough. So Shaddai means that he is more than enough. It's also from the root Shad, which means breast, which is the milk that supplies immunity to the child against all disease. So mother's milk is the most powerful. So God supplies his children with the essence of what we need to fight off anything that would come against us. So today, this is what is put on the mezuzah at the doorpost, where we put the Shema in there. Like at my doorpost, it has this letter here, the letter Sheen, and Spock used it for the Vulcan salute to live life, to live long and prosper. So it invokes everything from his Jewish mm -hmm. mindset, Leonard Nimoy, from what the rabbis did at the end of service to provoke prosperity, all right? So I'm gonna do this in the Hebrew tongue and then I'll pray it in English. So Father, we thank you today, Lord God, for this divine name of God, that in the name of God, the presence of God, the Shekinah glory is invoked, that the prosperity and sufficiency of God is invoked, that the shalom of God is invoked, that Father, you wanna love us, bless us and multiply us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you with divine favor. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you for he is the glory and lifter of your head. The kavod of God, the glory of God, not only lift his presence upon you, but he will establish shalom for you, wholeness for you, spirit, soul, and body from Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace that rules and reigns in your heart, that you're rooted and grounded in his love, that the faith of God, the power of God, exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think is invoked in this prayer of Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace, who rules and reigns not only in the heavenlies, but we're seated in heavenly places. Today, in the name that is above every name, the name Yeshua, which means Yah saves, Yah heals, Yah delivers, that Adonai, the Lord, the master, he is in control of all and he defends us against all. Today, in the name above every name, Beshem Yeshua HaMashiach, the anointed Messiah, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Yeshua, we pray, Beshem Yeshua, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Amen. May the, the name of God, the Shekinah glory of God, and the sufficiency of God be not only your prosperity, but it be your identity and your divine authority. Amen. Thank you so much, Rabbi.
I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Born to Rule podcast. Hey, if you're on here, we'd love for you to like, subscribe, comment, put a review, five stars, and also share this with a few friends for them to begin to walk in the authority that God has given them to. We need more kings and queens under God activated and unleashed to the world. But hey, all in all, we want you to walk in the power that God has given you for your everyday life. And so remember this. You were born to rule. You were born to rule.